Hello, friends. Welcome to Gratitude, a podcast about love, resilience, empathy, compassion, hope, and wisdom, all tied in one. I'm your host, Chris Atageka. I'm an engineer, a TED speaker, and an entrepreneur. Each week, we invite inspiring, successful guests to share stories that celebrate, reflect on, and give gratitude to people in their lives, past and present, whose shoulders they stand on. Speakers also get to share nuggets of wisdom learned from these heroes that fueled their success. Our listeners get to walk away with practical advice and apply it in their own lives. Our guest today is Dr. Dikai. He is a distinguished cultural AI researcher, an inaugural member of Google's AI Ethics Council, is a founding fellow for the Association for Computational Linguistics. Dikai is one of those pioneers in uh, building intelligent machines. And if you've ever used Google Translate, you have interacted with Dikai's work. He is a professor at Berkeley International Computer Science Institute and also professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. He is an engineer creative coming in at both the technical and the humanistic dimensions of building new technologies. Professor Dikai, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me here, Chris. It's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, so, you know, as a person who has built many artificial intelligent products and systems and you continue to do research in that space, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on a few things. And uh, I'm excited to dive in into some of this content. So when it comes to building technologies, bias is one of those uh, issues that we continue to see over and over again. So for bias in humans and inherently in machines, people always don't see themselves as that dark person. They always think of one of their evil uncles as the one who is biased or some white supremacist somewhere in the dark corner as the one who is biased, uh, but they don't see themselves as the biased one. And the reality is that you are biased, I am biased. Um, in one of the many conversations that we've had, you and I, you've mentioned that there are three types of biases. Uh, if you may please uh, share with our listeners what those are. Yeah, I think it, uh, this is super critical because in all the discussion we're having today uh, about bias, I see a lot of conversations sort of going off track, uh, ironically, because of people's biases. And right. so it's, um, you know, important to distinguish these three types, which are inductive bias, cognitive bias, and algorithmic bias. Uh, you know, so beginning with the first, inductive bias, we... Uh, in the study of cognitive science and machine learning and so forth, ha have to recognize that there is no learning possible without inductive bias. 
If you don't have inductive bias, the only thing you can do is to memorize, no matter how many examples you're presented with. So like, um, take a simple example. If I flip a coin and I flip it twice and it comes up heads both times, do you think that that is uh, a fair coin or do you think that is, uh, you know, a cheat coin, a double headed coin, perhaps, or a weighted coin? Well, it's, you know, you might say two times, um, maybe it's just random chance. You're not quite sure. If I flip it three times, it might still be random chance that it came up heads three times in a row. Happens all the time. Mm. Uh, if I flip it five times, you, you're like wondering, wow, that's pretty amazing. But, you know, it's quite a streak of luck. If I flip it 10 times, it could still be, you know, an amazing streak of luck. It, you know, it's like winning the lottery. You, you could conceivably win the lottery. Um, if I flip it 100 times, most people... Uh, after 100 heads in a row would say, hmm, I'm really suspicious that this is a cheap coin. Right. But, but you know, that is, that is your bias. At some point in between there, your bias, your inductive bias is saying, uh, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I can't prove it because it could still just be random chance. Uh, but I'm going to take this leap of faith that uh, I can draw a generalization here, that this coin always comes up heads. Right. Um, and so like that is going beyond the training data that is beyond memorizing that a hundred tosses of the coin all resist, uh, all resulted in heads. Mm. And so we absolutely need that, whether, uh, we're learning as a human or whether it's a machine that's doing the learning. Now, the second type of bias is cognitive bias. And this is an unconscious bias that evolution has hardwired into all of us. It's things like confirmation biases, uh, stereotyping, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, where if you uh, have experts, they tend to be biased toward thinking they know too little. (laughs) Um, But if you have people who know very little, they tend to be biased to think they already understand it all. Um, You know, a lot of these cognitive biases that we bear at, unconsciously as humans were were wired into us by evolution because these kinds of stereotyping these kinds of exaggerations these kinds of paranoias um helped our distant ancestors to survive so you know if you heard a rustle in the bushes and you ran it it didn't really hurt you very much uh if 99 out of 100 times you were wrong and it was just the wind but that one time when it was a predator in the bushes it saved your life right, right so we right. So, so we tend to exaggerate our paranoia. Uh, but that, uh, unfortunately, in this modern era, is creating a situation where we have, um, with, with algorithmic bias, the third type of AI, amplifying um, our cognitive biases by virtue of the way we interact with social media and with search engines. What it's doing is it's bringing... Uh, recommendations uh, to what you see on the internet in a way that appeals to your cognitive bias because companies and politicians in Washington, D.C. and so on have figured out that appealing to your unconscious bias uh, to trigger your fears, your paranoia, your outrage is, you know, at least three times stronger than any other emotion. And that drives profit to the tech companies. It drives power to the politicians. And so the algorithmic bias of machine learning behind search engines and social media and so forth, recommendation engines, is simply learning 
just like a human child learns mm. from the data that it sees, the examples of how humans are writing, how humans are consuming and reading, how humans are behaving. And it's learning that and feeding it back into our society. And so when people talk about algorithmic bias, I think it's really important to recognize that really what it is, is it's a mirror of ourselves. It's an exponential amplifier of our Achilles heel that comes from these unconscious cognitive biases. And those cause us to do the induction, the, the learning in ways that are not necessarily healthy for our society. In fact, they are tearing our societies apart, both domestically today with the polarization and the fear and the hatred, as well as geopolitically. Right, right. I mean, and that is a good point you bring up where there's so much uh, polarization in politics and there's all these race and uh, uh, other issues that are getting amplified more and more uh, online. So if bias is so basic to human nature, uh, what can be done about it in the technology era, in the AI era, where we are transferring all the good, the bad, and the ugly from us humans and putting it into the machine? So what can be done about it? I mean, this is where we have to really shift the paradigm. We, we need to find radical new ways to combat the exponential amplification of, of the dangerous aspects of our unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and it's quite likely that the only tools we have that have the same exponential level of power to tackle the exponential levels of dysfunction that we're now experiencing uh, are the AI technology. And so, you know, talk about fighting fire with fire, the, the power of AI may be the only thing that we have that's capable of tackling the deep-seated um, systemic problems that are being amplified by AI uh, in our social media, in our society, in our search engines, in our recommendation engines. And, you know, there this this dangerous lack of intercultural understanding that we are getting again whether we're talking about cultures around the world or whether we're talking about cultures even domestically within our country um uh which is being amplified by the information disorder um well to navigate through that we you know we're in the same way that something like Google Maps uh, is helping us with our, our weaknesses, our cognitive weaknesses in spatial orientation and location. And mm. It's sort of helping me exponentially with that. Um, we need to develop, I think, new ways of using AI to augment our consciousness in the same way that Google Maps is augmenting my consciousness um, to become more mindful of where those unconscious biases every day are preventing me from seeing things uh, with a greater depth of perspective in ways that are you know um, driving us toward both a more logical and empirical understanding of highly different places in the world and uh, highly different views of it mm. uh, as well as empathetically so to push a little more on that point, uh, one would argue that 
the people are creating the technologies, uh, first of all, may not be as diverse uh, as the technologies they're creating or the people they're creating the technology for. So if we're fighting fire with fire, how do we make sure that there is diverse uh, ideas, thought processes, product design on the table to make sure that um, the product that goes into the world is a representative of what the world looks like as opposed to some individual uh, just creating a product because, you know, you know, just because, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, so along with that goes, you know, efforts to, uh, to, to get through to people who are building the technology, people who are building the training sets, and also to get through to the general public. Because, mm -hmm. you know, again, a large part of the problem is that engineers are just working with the data that we put out there. But the data that we put out there you know, the data that uh, every one of us is putting out there every day on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, um, uh, on podcasts, right, <laughs> um, right. uh, these, you know, that is the training data. And so, you know, engineers can only do so much uh, because attempting to write rules to enforce certain kinds of fairness uh it pretty much runs into obstacles immediately with conflicts between different ethical rules. Right, Anytime right. you have more than three rules, they immediately come into conflict with each other in the messy real world, right? We've heard about the trolley problem, for example, where um, a car, uh, a self-driving car that has to make a choice between veering left or right to avoid either, you know, say 50 elderly people and one baby or uh, something like that uh, you right, know there's right. uh th there's no single rule that resolves all the messy details of the real world and so uh what you need to do is uh you need to have the machines try to learn values that are uh you know consistent with the values in general that all of us humans uh have and to make those uh really hard choices in that way and you can't enumerate all of that. Right. So the only thing engineers can do is try to get data sets that are more representative uh, of the population than they currently are. Mm -hmm. But even if they do that, we still have the problem that the data sets themselves are so full of the uh, unconscious biases that all of us as humans are putting out there every day. Right. Uh, and so this is, you know, a tripartite problem to be solved between big tech companies, um, government and regulation. And we cannot forget the population, the general population, all of us as a whole. You know, it, it really goes back to the principle that especially in a democracy with rights comes responsibilities. And we cannot expect big tech and government alone to make AIs um, ethically responsible if the population as a whole is, you know, shrugging and saying, well, it's not for me to be ethically responsible. Yes, the work of the government, right? Um, so what's interesting is that even the word ethics itself, um, depending on the culture you were raised in or the culture you come from, uh, ethics are not a standard. There's no one ethics that governs everybody. 
the Western culture has a certain set of ethics that may be different from the Eastern culture or culture from the African continent and, and so on and so forth. Um, it is, it is a, an interesting dilemma that we have to deal with as we go through this, uh, this world of building technologies. Um, uh, yeah, really, really interesting. So how, how did you get here? How did you get to do this type of work? Oh my God. It's uh, really been a complicated journey. I, um, I was born and raised uh, a Midwesterner, Missouri and Illinois. Mm. Um, uh, but as one of very few at the time, Asian Americans uh, there, um, I, you know, came to realize very early um, how different uh, ways of looking at the world are created by whatever cultures you're immersed amongst. And, um, you know, I'm eternally grateful to my parents for bringing us um, overseas uh, and seeing extremely impoverished uh, parts of the world as a young child uh, and understanding that they were framing existence and the world and aspirations and, and um, problems very, very differently mm -hmm. from those of us living in a comfortable um, Midwestern uh, middle American life. So uh, that caused me to be interested not only from, you know, my very early interests in uh, musical arts and social science and humanities to technology um, and science and building things and making things work. <laughs> and, you know, this kind of followed just my choices through school, through my hobbies, through undergraduate at UCSD at, at, at Berkeley and in my PhD years, um, as well as uh, postdocs and other uh, research stints in uh, the US and in Europe, um, all when I was young. So these were, I think, things that, that brought me to a place where I was never really focused only on the technology, never really focused only on, say, music, but on what sort of social impact that has mm. and what could we do to improve the situation wow um so this uh, show is certainly about celebrating and giving gratitude to people in our lives who have loved us and who have supported us who have nurtured us who have believed in us um you mentioned uh your parents playing a huge role into, you know, giving you that exposure and showing you the world uh, that inspired you early on to uh, be able to do the impact work you're doing today. Who is the earliest person? Uh, you know, you may even say your parents, but uh, somebody in your early memories uh, that you look back on and say, I stand on this person's shoulders. Oh, my God. Yes, um, I, I. There are so many shoulders that I appreciate. I don't know how to limit to uh, one to four. Mm, <laughs> we right, were communicating right. about they were, you know, my parents. Uh, obviously, the dedication they demonstrated in, in helping the less fortunate and social responsibility and anti-racism and education and, uh, you know, my my dad as an academic and intellectual inspiration and my mom who you know fought her she fought her way through medical school with three young children 
um mm. and you know that that's insane um and so like just but but there were many others you know um uh, I, I remember john bardeen as a child uh my my dad is uh, a theoretical physicist and um you know, Bardeen was a colleague who uh, literally was one of the three inventors uh, of the transistor. Wow. Um, and, you know, things like that make you realize the amount of impact that a single person can have if you find the enablers that let people um, really uh, explode um, things that can benefit humanity. Um, but, you know, going on, um, it, this, this went through school my you know my mentors during my berkeley phd right were, right were were amazing you know I'll, george lakoff um who i'm still working with now um giant in cognitive linguistics um who pioneered the study of metaphor in linguistics um, right and wow and how and how the choices of metaphor and our language frame again are because of our unconscious cognitive biases they 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 frame the situation in ways that make us jump to conclusions about which side of a social political issue we come down on uh, with, without doing reasoning. And that, that's really important to understand because it hugely affects how a democracy makes decisions. And it's often quite dangerous, especially in the hands of demagogues. Right. Um, Jerry Feldman at Berkeley, who, again, I'm still working with today, who you know, the neural networks uh, pioneer who literally invented the word connectionism. Um, mm, mm. Chuck, Chuck Fillmore, a, a giant of a linguist who pioneered the study of, you know, sort of structural um, lexical semantics. Um, Bob Belinsky, who was a pioneer in story understanding and narrative AI. Um, right after that, Jeff Hinton during my Toronto postdoc, uh, who's the granddaddy of deep learning. Ken Church at Bell Labs, who, you know, helped to spur machine learning and statistics in natural language processing. IBM Fred Jelinek. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, Fred Jelinek from IBM Watson, uh, who um, mentored me through several research since at Johns Hopkins. Um, but then also, you know, even as undergrads, my, my UCSD professors, um, say uh, the founder of UCSD's Ravel College, who, who was um, the climate science pioneer, Roger Ravel, mm, uh, mm. That, who, who championed uh, undergraduate education that was liberal arts. So you know, even if we were science or technology majors, two solid years of the most intensive humanities, social sciences, fine arts, uh, um, you know, et cetera, philosophy that, that you could imagine. Uh, one one of whom was my philosophy of science and technology professor um, Gerald Doppelt, who um, confronted me as a young undergraduate, the only engineering student in a class full of advanced philosophy majors, looking at Marxist theories of labor um, and what technology was doing um, to society from right. that place. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I sweated my way through that class, but it, it was great preparation for understanding. Things like what AI today is about to do to the job market mm. and our sense of self-worth. Or say the computer music pioneer Dick Moore at UCSD literally upended note, you know, what music was through the lens of computer technology, um, uh, as well as my 
normal music teacher, my classical music teachers at Northwestern University or my, you know, Chicago blues and jazz teachers that taught me throw out the rules from classical training. Wow. It <laughs> does take a village, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It's amazing. Wow. You've had uh, uh, not only uh, amazing people in your life that have kind of guided you through, but not just people. It's uh pioneers in their fields uh, type of people, uh, you are very, uh, very lucky. So obviously you are successful and you've gone through a few things and you've survived a few things, you've failed at a few things, you've struggled through a few things. Um, what are some of the tools in your toolkit that you've assembled over the years to deal with the walls or the hurdles that you encounter? Uh, and make sure they don't break you and you keep moving forward to be as successful as you are today? Right. A really good question. I think uh, one of them is to stay focused on the goal. Mm. We often lose sight of, you know, the forest for the trees and confuse the means with the end. The, you know, whether things are going the way you expect them to or not, those are only means. Right. There's so many different paths. And I think one of the nice things um, from Eastern strands of philosophy, like Taoism, is um, finding, you know, paths, finding the way in ways that are not, you know, uh, you know, in, in we say way, you know, without effort, but meaning um, instead of trying to push water uphill, right, you're finding the kinds of uh, things that will, with very little effort, help, uh, you know, exponentially in in getting things toward a goal. It's what B Buckminster Fuller, you know, uh, made this metaphor of um, the trim tab. You, you know what a trim tab is? That's the little flap. And you, yep. Okay, so you have a giant ship, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and they steer with rudders well on on these huge cargo ships the rudders are huge right uh, and the rudders themselves are so heavy that it turning the rudders is incredibly hard right and so what you need is to um have uh, a, this clever solution of having a rudder embedded in the tail end of the giant rudder right. <laughs> so you have a rudder in a rudder and that little rudder if you turn the little rudder then it causes the giant rudder to turn which turns the entire giant ship yep um and so, you know, these are two great ways uh, between Taoism and uh, and trim tabs to understand how to to um, get through the hurdles. And I think staying on the goals um, is, you know, it's about staying on staying um, focused on the truths. On the truths, whether, right? Whether whether or not we like them. One of the good things about PhD training, about scientific training, mm. is to always keep an open mind to possibilities that you don't like right um because because when you don't like them it's generally speaking it's a product of your unconscious cognitive biases and it's often just culturally dependent uh and so if you are always keep an open mind yeah always so when you go and... question your assumptions right um that's super super critical as a tool yeah, when um, you go in with preconceived notions and assumptions, then you get disappointed <laughs> when the actual truth comes out. Um, yeah, I like the the metaphor of the trim tab 
it's it's similar in flying planes. There is a trim wheel. Uh, uh, similarly, that it can actually turn the entire uh, plane, where, and it's easy to do the smaller incremental changes versus looking at the bigger picture and freeze and fear that you won't be able to 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 pull it off. So so along those lines, uh, what are some of the advice you give to your uh, maybe your students or uh, people you meet or even our listeners right now who are struggling to find that purpose, that calling, that thing that uh, they can spend their time on. Um, if you already know the thing and say, oh, keep the eyes on the prize, but someone else may say, well, I don't know the, the prize quite yet. Uh, what are some of your thoughts for someone like that? Um, you know, I think I think it's looking for um, the radical impact. Mm. What, what can you, you know, obviously you have to understand your values. Um, what is important? Uh, what are the problems in your, in, in your community uh, or in bigger communities or on the planet uh, that uh, really are important? And then what, is, what kind of radical impact can you make on that? Right, right. Whether it's at a global level or uh, at your community level. Mm. And, and, you know, keep asking yourself, how do, you, how, how do I focus on originality? How do I focus on doing not what everybody else is doing already, but on addressing problems that people are not addressing, on addressing problems that people haven't even managed to identify mm. explicitly and articulate yet? And at the same time as you're focusing on that originality, make sure that you do your homework, make sure you learn all about anything previously done by others there and acknowledge them. Right, right. Um, and we, because we all stand on shoulders of, of giants, even when we are bringing our own original contributions. Right. Yeah. Uh, well said, really well said. Um, what are some of, uh, uh, digestible quotes or memorable quotes, either from someone else that you heard from your mentors or individuals whose shoulders you stand on and along those lines, a book that you gift the most or that inspires you? Oh, my God. <laughs> you keep asking these questions to which there are so many answers. Uh, I uh, know. <laughs> uh, so one uh, quote that I love um, uh, comes from uh, my PhD mentor, Jerry Feldman. Mm. Um, uh, he's the neural networks um, pioneer I mentioned earlier. And uh, he was always reminding us, uh, I, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit um, to be more understandable to a non-technical audience. Um, if you represent a problem using the right language, almost any stupid machine learning algorithm will work. <laughs> wow. But if you get the representation language wrong, even exponential amounts of mathematical acrobatics and gymnastics still won't learn it right. Mm, mm. And uh, that's been really key to understanding, uh, on the one hand, machine learning, right. uh, neural networks and so forth, where 
um, it's so important uh, for the inductive bias that we started out talking about uh, to spe- you know get specifically the representation language bias correct. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you frame this problem? What language did you use to describe the problem? Even if you're using a mathematical language for neural networks, there's still a language that uh, you're giving as input to the neural network. It might be all zeros and ones or real numbers, but that's still a language. Right. And how you choose to frame the problem, you know, if you don't encode um, somebody's um, uh, race as part of the input, um, it, or, or let's say if you don't encode somebody's um, uh, color, then no amount of machine learning is going to help them to identify uh, these people with the correct amounts of accuracy, right? Because if you've right. made yourself unable in your representation language to even see key features of the person you're trying to classify, mm. uh, then you then exponential amounts of mathematics is still not going to help you in your learning algorithm. Right. Uh, so for matters of uh, actually definition for the audience that may not be scientific, could you briefly actually share what machine learning is, what deep learning is, or what neural networks are in like layman terms for a three-year-old to get it or a 10-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like our, our human brains are made not of digital logic equations or uh, or silicon chips. They're, they're made of neurons, right? Gazillions of neurons, trillions of neurons, uh, mm-hmm. each of which are very, very simple units in the same way that a transistor is a very simple unit. Um, and uh, no single neuron understands the world or understands even what it's trying to do. It's just locally, it receives some inputs and uh, they're, you know, activations from other neurons that happen to be connected to them. Uh, and then mm-hmm. it outputs some signal as well. And they, over time, they adjust their behavior on how they output things to get, depending on their input. And so um, when we, in machine learning, uh, which is the science of getting machines to be able to learn, um, uh, we uh, often use artificial uh versions of neural networks, um, of networks of these kinds of artificial neurons, which mm. are very simplified. Like an artificial brain. They're, they're kind of like an artificial brain that we, we simplify things a lot. Um, they, uh, and, and we experiment with different architectures of how, uh, to hook up neurons and how they learn individually and how that might produce a more complex, uh, learning behavior, uh, of, mm when you have trillions uh, or say billions or millions of them connected. And, and uh, you know, today deep learning is an, uh, an architecture, a uh, family of architectures where you have many different layers of, uh, of these kinds of artificial neurons, uh, very deep layered uh, architecture that are doing amazing things. Uh, they're still far from the intelligence of humans, but mm-hmm. uh, the results of la- the latest deep learning um, uh, AIs such as um, GPT-3 uh, really kind of uh, tend to flabbergast the uh, people outside of AI who have never seen machines be able to do pattern completion uh, that well. 
but it still relies heavily just on enormous amounts of training. It, it's still very heavily memorization based instead of learning to generalize from small amounts of data the way that children do. Uh, Can you say more about GPT-3? Because a lot of people may not be familiar with that. Um, so GPT-3 is the latest in a, in a sequence of uh, what we call language models uh, mm -hmm. that basically predict what the next word should be uh, given. Uh, if you've heard a sequence of words and somebody suddenly stops and asks you, Okay, so like, what would you predict would have been my next word? Um, if I had stopped there, you would have probably predicted my next word would be what? Because, mm -hmm. um, and so you're in, that's when humans are being language models. So GPT-3 is that kind of a thing. And uh, it's very good at doing it. Um, but it's doing it basically by memorizing almost everything that's ever been written, uh, everything on the internet almost. Um, and so then uh, it, it basically uh, is able to regurgitate from the fact that so much of what we say it has been said before, as opposed to being cr really truly creative the way a human four-year-old who's already mastered their mother tongue with far, far less data that they've been exposed to in in their childhood typically 15 millions words of english spoken to them in their entire lifetime as opposed to uh trillions and trillions and trillions of words of data that something like gpt3 has been trained on wow wow that's uh uh it's interesting but also kind of has some uh, scary components of which direction it could go we'll see we'll see there's always some unintended consequences that show up um yeah no i i i, I skipped around and you didn't share your book the book you gift the most oh yeah um Gosh, and I was still going to tell you the quotes. Um, that <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, go go ahead, tell me the quotes. Sorry, uh, I was I was very jumping to that uh, to to the opportunity to ask more about machine learning and deep learning. <laughs> um, uh, I yeah, I mean there are some simpler quotes that I love. Um, you know, one one was about the need in science and engineering and AI specifically um, that um, Fred Jelinek, you know, who was um, uh, one of the masterminds that uh, at IBM Watson, that under under whose wing a lot of Watson came uh, came mm. into fruition, and he, and um, he said, you know, our community. He, he was always emphasizing how important communication was, um, not just you know the brilliant mathematics uh, of someone like him who literally. Um, uh, developed the breakthrough called hidden Markov models that uh, enabled speech recognition uh, technologies to exist at all. Um, mm -hmm. And he was always emphasizing, you know, that our, our field is cooperative. We, we don't do anything alone. We have to figure out in engineering what to do. And that's done by exchange, which right. I think is something that really resonates with the theme of this podcast series. <laughs> right, right. Um, there's uh, others, my, my uh, PhD mentor, Bob Walensky, uh, would say, there's nothing more dangerous than an energetic idiot. 
energetic <laughs> idiot. <laughs> That's, I mean, we got one right now. So, uh, uh, not, 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 na- not necessarily naming any names here. But <laughs> not any names, but we got one with a lot of energy. Bored <laughs> us out extremely well. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's, this is not an attributable quote, but, you know, I, I think the motto put up or shut up is really mm. important. Um, it, it is it is uh, very easy to criticize, and a lot of people attempt to look smart by criticizing other people, other ideas. Mm. But mm. you know what's really hard and what really requires intelligence is to come up with a better idea. Mm. Mm. Uh, and wow, yeah, I think that that is something I live by. And the book you gift the most? Oh gosh. <laughs> There's so many. You do books? Uh, I do. Um, I mean, I, I think... have a tiny book. Uh, it's called uh, The Why Cafe. Uh, it's about life. And it's, I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. It's, it's pretty cool. It's this man who was, uh, uh, you know, traveling and asking about the purpose of life. And he wrote a very interesting book to kind of question. Why am I alive? Uh, it's one book I gift the most. <laughs> wow. Um, let me think. So, so I tailor my gifts to pe- people and where they are. So it, um, mm. it varies. Recently, I've gifted um, why Buddhism is true. Uh, mm. I've gifted religion for atheists. Um, I've been... I've gifted many times um, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. <laughs> That's um, an interesting one. Uh, it's super, super important for unpacking um, in terms of you know geographical circumstances, the kinds of differences in cultures that arose. Um, you know, so all of that ties into the bias issues that we were talking about before and explains lots of things that people critique and um, take for granted or um, but without understanding well you know this is why things are the way they are here and not there um, right right so what are some of the uh, creative ways that you've seen over the years how you and I can uh, say thank you or a gesture to give gratitude to people whose shoulders we stand on or the people who have made us who we are. I think that things like this podcast are some Mm. of the best ways. And I don't know, um, it's not a creative way, but in academics, we are taught always to cite other people Mm. who have done- Giving them the credit work and i wish that all of the world would do that because it's so important to acknowledge and and it gives a path for people to go back and read the old stuff and understand the nuances there hmm. so we need to come up with a a some sort of like a citation for gratitude <laughs> for people <laughs> we, we showed us we stand on <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, well, we are going through an interesting time, as you know, right now. And, uh, you know, there's a lot that's going on, a lot of revelations. Um, 
and we need to build a new world as we come up on the other side. Uh, what does being human in the new desired world look like to you? I think we inevitably have to face the uncomfortable fact that AI is um, already in the process of completely overhauling our society and ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. We, uh, again, this is, this goes back on what I was saying earlier about staying focused on the truths, even if we don't like them. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's scary and uncomfortable for many of us, but uh, we can't turn back the clock. There is no way to take the route, uh, the Luddite route and say, we're just going to stay the way that we are. Even if we were to do that, we would just become, you know, marginalized populations because they're the majority of the world isn't going to do that. And so we have to right. come to grips with just as, you know, when the industrial revolution happened, people were extremely um, unhappy about it and, and fighting what machines were doing to their traditional way of life, their traditional job market. And, but, you know, like uh, we had to find a way to cope with and, and adapt um, how we worked, how we lived. Um, that scale of transformation uh, is going to have to happen again. In fact, uh, with the AI revolution, it's going to be an even larger transformation because I mean, it's happening. It's, it's <laughs> like happening. everyone is going remote right now. So we are depending on machines more and more. We are. And it's not only, you know, I mean, the industrial revolution and, and even the internet, you know, and telecom, those are still machines that are automating um, labor. Uh, they're mm -hmm. automating muscle. Um, uh, you know, I, we can use teleconferencing instead of physically walking or flying uh, to some place to meet. Um, but with AI, it's automation of thought, of opinion, of mind, of learning, mm. of influence. And that is a brave new world that historical precedent doesn't offer us the experience to deal with. And we need far, far deeper conversations about far, far more radical uh, um, paradigm shifts in our assumptions about what society is and how society should function and what the place of humans is within that. We are all being already augmented by AIs. Um, you know, our, the phones and devices you carry are all chock full of AIs that are constantly learning from what you do on those phones and then feeding it back through social media and search and advertising recommendation engines into our society. Our society is right. populated by more, by billions more AIs than humans already today. And they right. are part of us. My brain is half in my phone right now between Google maps and my phone number, you know, contact list and uh, my notes, half of my memory is already in my brain at my fingertips nonstop and will very shortly be in my field of vision in AR augmented contact lenses just before it goes in directly into my brain through neural implants. Um, right. And I mean, a lot of people think about AI and they kind of have this distant future thought process of like, you know, uh, Terminator uh, yeah, showing up at some time T 
uh, until then, uh, they don't know that it is here and it is here to stay. Everything we deal with and interact with today in technology world is infused with all forms of AI. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a very, very interesting thought. Um, we are coming close to the end of our conversation here. So I got uh, two more questions for you. Uh, uh, what do you value the most in this life? I, I value cultures, the diversity mm. of our cultures and the relations to build amongst them. Um, one of the things that my parents gave me the most is this, um, this love and this desire to love many different cultures, whether it's the language or the food or the music or the philosophies. Um, there is such joy to be had in opening mm. our minds and learning from that because so many different traditions have learned over the eons, so many different rich aspects of um, human existence. And to slot ourselves into one narrow slice of that is to deny us ourselves some some of the greatest joys um, in life. Wow, cultures, uh, absolutely. Um, what is the greatest gift you've ever received? I can say wholeheartedly the gift of unconditional love from a bunch of strangers is the whole reason I'm even talking to you right now. Um, so it's the greatest gift I've ever received. Uh, what would you say yours is? Uh, absolutely. I think it's the communities um, that, uh, well, even that, that you and I met in. Um, it's people who deeply care uh, how to make our our world, our society, a better place, and throw themselves into it, um, and connect us. It, it is all those people that I mentioned um, already, the the giants mm -hmm. uh, who who gave me the lift to be able to see uh, anything that I can see now. It's such wow. a, such a blessing. Such a blessing. Oh, wow. Uh, that's uh, awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing. Uh, you know, what are some uh, uh, solutions uh, you're excited about uh, coming out of your research lab right now? Oh, wow. Well, you know, we're moving from uh, decades of work pioneering uh, things like Google Translate, you know, machine translation. Uh, which is, you know, all done by machine learning. It, it's like machines learning how to translate things from one language to another and, and looking more deeply at uh, that in terms of how cultures um, frame things differently in language, mm. right? Mm. Um, mm. A lot of the problems that we have now encountered in doing Google Translate type things come from the fact that the same situation in uh, it, uh, one place in the world is say in the U S is, um, talked about, written about in completely different language, completely different metaphors from the ways that it's discussed in another part of the world, whether it's right. the, um, Arabic world or Europe or 
the Chinese world or the South American world or the Indian world or the African world. It's just um, remarkable how that changes the ways that you can think because mm. language really structures thought. And so we're looking at how to do that. And, you know, it's beginning to intersect with what I've been working in the, for the last six months, which has been really, you know, because of COVID, um, this, this difficulty uh, that I noticed in February of how to get the Western world to even think about the possibility that wearing masks uh, was a major contributor. You know, we talk about talking about representation language, bias, mm -hmm. conscious biases. Back then, and for months, uh, the WHO and Johns Hopkins and all these institutions were not even collecting data on whether different countries and regions were using universal masking. They were collecting data on uh, whether places were social distancing, on whether places were testing, on whether places were contact tracing. Hmm. But in their representation language of the problem, their unconscious bias caused them not even to represent the language of whether people were universally masking. And hmm. so that led to a situation causing, you know, hundreds of thousands of needless deaths because the fact that they didn't have the representation language of whether places was mask were masking or not uh, led to an inability to predict the correlation, which is almost 100% correlation in our research mm. between mm. places mm. that universally mask and places that successfully suppressed the spread of COVID. Right, um, right. So wow. we've built AI-inspired agent-based models that are new, went viral, you know, like on the, the Vanity Fair's cover story and spending everything from New York Times to um, Forbes and MSNBC and Fox News and, and all of that um, uh, was, was hugely influential in uh, shifting the public consciousness uh, to understand that, well, our unconscious bias has made us overlook this uh, very important and relatively inexpensive uh, countermeasure in the inter interventions against COVID. Uh, and we're looking at now how to um, scale up those models from the, the video the, that kind of went viral <laughs> that we made to demonstrate this visually um, mm -hmm. uh, and look at how uh, unconscious biases um, interact with that because it doesn't look like COVID is going away anytime soon. And we really need to use the AI resources that we have to tackle this problem without too much more unnecessary loss of life and economic damage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, uh, amazing work. And I'm, I'm sure we can find ways to share with our listeners uh, the, the links to the work. So where can our listeners find you online, oh. websites, social media handles type of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, my uh, website is easy. It's my name, actually. It's uh, HTTP colon slash slash D-E-K dot A-I. So mm. just D-E-K dot A-I. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at Dakai123. 
D E K A I one two three and um uh uh shoot me a message uh you can do it by Facebook um it's uh I'm just uh, at facebook.com at um Dekai one Dekai one awesome I mean the we are going to include some of this info in the text description so our listeners can actually find it and connect with you. So Dika, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful eye-opening conversation and a conversation between me and you is always awesome and I I truly enjoyed it. So thank you for coming to the show. Thank you so much. Love you Chris. It's been a, a real pleasure as always. Thank you. The question to you our listeners is this Whose shoulders do you stand on Please give us a call share with us on Twitter Facebook and Instagram and my team will select one person's story each week to add to the episode Special thanks to our producers Isaac Silk and Jen Batty the people behind the scenes making this show possible immense gratitude goes out to my grandmother elnor she is deaf and mute will never get a chance to hear this but she is my hero kara adams ben isoke michael and martha helms these are the people whose shoulders i stand on and always remember happiness depends on gratitude see you next week <laughs>